0: I want to thank you guys for uh, having reached out to me. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Um, the text we got, I got this week regarding uh, the passing of Chloe last week. That was hard. Uh, and uh, she passed away Wednesday morning at about 5:40. Uh, she was supposed to have a procedure. Wednesday afternoon to re- remove fluid from her abdomen, which would have given her maybe a couple of more weeks. And I was hoping in that time frame to be able to see her. I was actually going to go up and see her Monday of last week, but Mike said, no, the weekend has been too chaotic with all the family coming in from Atlanta and other places. So he was wore out. And, uh, but I'm uh, so grateful that I had the encouragement from my wife Wednesday morning when we found out Chloe had passed. She said, you need to just go. And I'm like, well, I haven't heard back from Mike. You know, I, he's got a lot of people up there. I don't want to cause more chaos in his life, but I'm so glad that I went. Mike was so grateful to have me there. Um, he's been, you know, totally warned. You can only imagine. I know many of you have been through that circumstance as well, but I was able to spend some great time with Mike, go to the funeral home with him, do some planning. And, you know, it's, uh, unfortunately at my age, You've had lots of experiences with those kinds of things, right? Uh, and uh, so, anyway, got back Wednesday evening. Um, thank you for carrying on uh, with our midweek conversations. And then, sometime this afternoon, Wendy and I will be driving back up to Omaha to spend the night there. And the memorial service is going to be tomorrow night in Lincoln, which is, you know, an hour closer to us here in Wichita than Omaha is. So after the memorial service, I'm hopeful that uh, we'll be able to just jump in the car and head back down to Wichita uh, um, and get back into town maybe by 1 or 2 Tuesday morning And uh, because the memorial is from 7 to about 9 o'clock there in Lincoln. So thank you. I say all that to say thank you. But it also just kind of remind us, you know, like, you know, Solomon wrote about there's a time for everything. And, you know, when we have a brother or sister in Christ pass on, it's really painful. I don't know how to handle death. Every person is a different experience, you know. But it's, it's just great to be able to celebrate somebody's life and as an encouragement to us to like, man, life is short, I know right now you guys probably feel like you're going to live forever, but newsflash. It isn't going to happen. It isn't going to happen. But the good news is, the older you get, the more you kind of anticipate the fulfillment. You know, as Tony was sharing even in communion, God's kingdom is here, but not yet. It's now, but not yet. I mean, there's there 's a part of god 's kingdom that is yet to be fulfilled, the consummation, if you will of all things, all things recreated all things new so uh, that 's kind of our schedule and uh, but again, thank you for your prayers and support um, and so we we motor on open your swords if you will to uh, joshua chapter twenty two because like I said last week we 're going to spend our time in that text this morning, but I did want to just throw out a you know, a question for you. How has B bee week been for you? You know, this, that idea that we talked about last week. And, you know, sometimes Ethan can probably relate to this. You get up and you teach a lesson and you don't know if it sticks. I know for me, even sometimes when I'm preaching, it goes in one ear and out the other. <laughs> and as, as, as a person who listens to the sermon, I take notes and everything. And, you know, uh, we, Sometimes we have short-term... Our challenge today is just managing all the information at our disposal, you know? I mean, there's just non-stop information. You ever, like, forget your cell phone? And then panic mode sets in, but then you're like, whoa, this is really awesome. I don't need that cell phone. Unless you need GPS, then you're in a whole lot of trouble, but anyway... But how is be weak? You know, the the text we read last week from Ephesians chapter 4, be completely humble, patient, bearing with one another in love, every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's just really challenging stuff to me, you know, to be humble, to be patient, to be bearing with one another in love. So I really want to encourage us to continue to avoid the nursery rhyme effect, member. And really listen to God. You know, just really. Thank you, Mark, even for, and I just want to say thank you to all of our worship leaders. I mean, I just appreciate our worship leaders so much. Yeah, we should, we should clap for them. You know, these are brothers and sisters who take time. I don't even know when their practices are, but, you know, you gotta practice songs, you gotta, you know, and, Worshipping, we're called to worship, we are created to worship, you know, and uh, hey, sometimes the songs we sing may not be our favorites, may not be your personal favorite, you know, one person likes hardcore gospel, another person likes, you know, the, the contemporary Christian music, you know, others like peppy, happy clappy songs, and, Others, like the more solemn, you know, we had a great variety of that, I think, even the last couple of weeks where, but let's just, let's get caught up in the element of worshiping God. And thank you so much for all of you worship leaders. And for you guys that are here that are Kingdom Kids teachers, too, I can't tell you how much that means to me as a parent. You know, I taught Kingdom Kids for a number of years and, you know, it can be challenging for sure. Uh, preparing the lessons and, you know, but, uh, I just want to encourage you. I I try to do this with Omaha too. Like, after you go today and you pick up your kids, thank your, thank their teachers. I don't think we thank each other enough, you know. Uh, it's something we just take for granted. And just like with you guys this meet, this week, the text that I got, it meant a lot to me. Sometimes we may think that all oh, this isn't meaningful or, you know, I don't want to bother, you know, or whatever, but it just means a lot. Read the book of Hebrews sometimes, the book of encouragement. You know, Hebrews is all about the call for us to encourage one another cuz certainly there's a lot of discouragement out there and we just need regular encouragement with each other. So, Genesis or Joshua chapter 22. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but you have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest, as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses the servant of the Lord gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands and to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away. And they went to their homes. Now, the next few scriptures talk about them leaving, them taking all of the bounty that they had secured during the fighting of the Canaanites in the lands that they possessed, and they made their way journey. And in verse 10, it says, When they came to Gilaloth, near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at the Gilloth near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one for each of the tribe's of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelites clan, Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead to Reuben Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, they said to him, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord, and you are now turning away from the Lord. If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us, building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord your God. When Achan, son of Zerah, acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The Mighty One, God the Lord, the Mighty One, God the Lord, he knows. He knows. And let Israel know, if this had been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No. We did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between you and us, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, let us go and ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow. And we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our fathers built not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings and sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before this tabernacle. When Phineas, the priest, and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben and Gad and Manasseh had said, they were pleased. And Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not acted unfaithfully toward the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest and the leaders returned to Canaan, from their meeting with the Reubenites and the Gadites in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praised God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. So for years I have read through this text and I'm like, this is, I don't get this. This is so confusing. What is up with this? I mean, how quickly are we seeing the community fall apart here, right? And I think this just there's just a lot of questions that you can encounter if you just dwell on this text for a while. And I'm so grateful that God calls us good because I think God gives us a lot of these gaps to wrestle with these things. And to really meditate on them and figure out what lessons he's trying to teach us through this, yep. you know. So let's understand that the situation we're in right now—this is about 1,200 years before the birth of Jesus. Wow. We're talking a long time, a long time before Jesus comes along. So I know you can't see this very well, um, and if you can't, maybe you should go to the eye doctor. <laughs> But if you have your eyeglasses and you still can't, I'm sorry, you know, but anyway, it's not important that you remember. You can go to Google and find this too, the division of the land, you know. Wendy and I had an opportunity to go to Israel back in February with uh, a few other couples from Omaha, and it was a tremendous experience. Really changed my views on a lot of things and, and taught me a lot of things. You know, you could fit the nation of Israel into like less than a third of the state of Kansas. It's a small place. And even to this day, it is completely surrounded by either water or hostile nations. And even within the middle of Israel itself is this area called the West Bank, which is controlled by Arab Muslims. I mean, and you go, we went to some souvenir places, like Bethlehem is part of the West Bank. And it's covered with fencing and barbed wire everywhere and a military guard to let people in and out. And if you're Jewish, if you're an Israeli Jew, you're not allowed to go in there unless you have a special permit. We could go in pretty easily because we were on a tour bus and we were not Israeli Jews. So it's 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 a pretty intense environment. But it's a small country, all things considered. You can drive from top to bottom up there at the top where you know, you have the Arameans all the way down to the bottom where it borders Egypt. You know, to the left or to the right is mainly the, uh, over on that side today is mainly the nation of Jordan. Uh, uh, to the north you have, uh, I can't remember all the uh, other small countries that are to the north there. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, but you can go from top to bottom in about four or five hour drive, easily. And the topography of this place is amazing. I mean, it goes from desert to rocky soil, vegetation kind of area, to water, to mountains. I mean, in a it's kind of like, if anybody here ever go to New Jersey? <laughs> New Jersey is one of the most diverse places in the United States, in my opinion, especially given its size. You have farming, you have some hilly stuff, you've got the ocean, and then you've got the industrialized north, and then you know New York City kind of bleeds into northern New Jersey. They even speak different kinds of English in the three different parts of New Jersey. <coughs> Seriously. I mean, in the northern half of New Jersey, they don't say the word R, you know? They don't. You know, it's like uh, when we first moved to Philadelphia, we would see a commercial by the governor, you know, inviting people to come tour New Jersey. And the end of the commercial was always New Jersey and you poifing together. Yeah. You know, <laughs> everything was like our kind of Philadelphia English until New Jersey and you poifing together. <laughs> anyway, so you know, we all have our different accents, right? So it's a very diverse small country, and you know, this is what it looks like. Um, does this thing have a power pointer? It does. So this is like the Jordan River right here. Here's the Dead Sea, uh, which I got a chance to swim in, which was really interesting, F- swim and float in the Dead Sea. Up here, uh, this is the Sea of Galilee. And we took a boat ride around the Sea of Galilee. We did not see the many, many fish and the many, many hands in the boat. <laughs> in but, you know, they do fish. <laughs> and so this is the Jordan River. And so here are the, you know... Uh, tribes of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh on the east side as well as on the west side. Of course, Manasseh uh, was the grandson of Jacob, the son of Joseph. Joseph had a son named Manasseh, so he was awarded uh, a, a tribe for Manasseh. Uh, so they divided the tribe in half, but that's another historical study as well that we won't go into today. So those two-and-a-half tribes... Settled on the east side of the Jordan River. Some of your Bibles may call them Transjordan. Trans just means across on the other side. Okay, you've probably heard the phrase or maybe you'll come across it. Transjordan. Uh, that's all it means. So we have this settlement and this is what it's kind of, kind of going through in terms of, but to go from here, which is the Mediterranean Sea, this right here is the Mediterranean Sea, to go from the west coast of Israel to the Jordan River this way, you know, it's only about 90 miles. It's not very far. And even though they walked most of the places, that was not a significant distance. You know, it was very common for them to obviously walk everywhere. So they would spent several years, according to the text here, of clearing the land. Verse 3 in Joshua 22 says, For a long time now, For a long time now, you have been with your brothers. And Moses had agreed to this. Moses had agreed to give the these two and a half tribes this land east of the Jordan, way back in Numbers chapter 32. Because they had gone to Moses and said, look, this land appears to be fertile and a good place for us to raise our livestock. And Moses says, okay, I'll let you do that. But first got to stay with your brothers and finish all the conquering of the land, all the territory. Then you can go back and possess that. So it's probably been five to seven years from the time that Moses made this promise to them to the time that we see them fulfilling that and being allowed by Joshua to go back to the land that they wanted east of the Jordan. That's a long time, five to seven years. They were separated from their families. According to Joshua chapter 1, You know, your wives and your livestock, they stay over here, but you you brothers come and lead the way with the rest of your brothers as we go and we conquer the land. Now, I don't know if they had weekend furloughs, but to be gone from their families for at least five to seven years as the Israelites are are taking over the land and pushing out the Canaanites and all the other ites that are living around there, there's no indication in Scripture that they went home on the weekend. But at the same time, I can't imagine them being at war every day, every week, you know. It was a different kind of warfare back then than we think of today. But anyway, the scriptures are silent about all of that. But we do know this. They stayed. They helped the Israelites. And even before this, there was that long history, right? A 40-year wandering in the wilderness before Joshua comes along. Moses passes, and now they're going to enter the promised land. So they had spent a lot of time together, a lot of time doing nothing but walking around in the desert and occasionally falling into sin in a big way, getting corrected by God, repenting, you know, and then God continuing to lead them. So there was a lot of familiarity with each other. <clears throat> and you got to admire the commitment, don't you, of these two and a half tribes? There's no indication in scripture like, oh, we're, you know, we're only doing this, Joshua, because Moses making us do it. They were happy, I believe. They were committed to serving one another. You have to admire that commitment. The other question you might ask on this is, why did they choose the area east of the Jordan? Was it purely economic? That seems to be what scriptures would tell us. Back in Numbers, it talks about, man, this land is fertile. It seems to be a great place for us to raise our cattle. We've got space to roam about, you know. But was it the best choice? Was the economic choice the best choice to make versus staying closely tied in with their brothers? I don't know. I think it's a question worth asking. You know, I think the lesson we can apply there for us is sometimes the richest or the easiest path isn't always the best. Right? I know most of you, if not all of you, at some point in your life, as a disciple especially, you've had to make a tough choice. You've had to turn down a job offer. Or maybe go this particular direction. And sometimes that might not have been the best decision. Did, you know, did we get the, the, the counsel that we needed to get? You know, I'm not asking you to, to think about that and reflect and regret. I'm just saying that even as we move forward, you know, economics and ease are not always the best decision. Yeah. Not always the best decision. Think about the rich young ruler, right? In Mark chapter 10 and Matthew 19. He told Jesus, I want to follow you. I've done everything since I was a kid. I follow the rules. I follow the law. And Jesus says, well, okay, awesome. Well, I threw that awesome part in. But sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Well, wait a second. That's, that's a new teaching. You never told me that before. And then we know the scriptures say that he turned around and went away sorrowful. I think more than likely too, from what I know of history, these two and a half tribes would have been some of the first people taken captive by the Assyrians by the time we get into the 8th century BC. You know, the Assyrian kingdom came in eventually and took the northern tribes captive. Judah held on for another 200 years or so. But these tribes out on the periphery would have been some of the first people to fall to the capture of the Assyrians. Verse 10 tells us that, you know, before they go into their own territory, they build an altar. It's an altar. I kept looking in the, you know, background of the words here in the Hebrew, like, well, oh, maybe it just meant memorial. No, it's it's an actual, it would probably was a replica. In fact, it says in the text that it was a replica of the altar where they worshipped back in Shiloh. So it was an altar where you would make sacrifices to God or a god. That was pretty common of the peoples back then to have altars and make sacrifices to their gods. And Israel definitely had their directive to worship God by bringing sacrifices. But was it a spur-of-the-moment decision once they gazed upon the natural buffer of the Jordan River? Could have been. You know, we don't know. But they had rationality for building this altar. They did. You know, think of the history of Israelites building altars. I mean, when Joshua crossed the Jordan, they built an altar to remind them of God's provision. I think that's where we we find the text too. It talks about, here, you know, we sing this song, Here I Raised by Ebenezer. That's what that is. Stone of Help. God is our helper, our Ebenezer. In 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12, after the Israelites defeated the Philistines, Maybe that's where they called it the Ebenezer. One of those, is that the Ebenezer one? Yes. Thank you. Great job. You still got (laughs) to (laughs) stay. But they're always building altars, right? And remember the Egyptian story. You remember the Egyptian story? And this is really crazy too, because in Genesis, when God is blessing Abraham with the threefold promise, nation, seed, land, he also tells them, your people are going to be in captivity for 400 years. So we read later on in the Exodus account that a, a generation of Egyptians rose up who didn't remember Joseph. And they thought to themselves, we better take these guys hostage or they're going to become so numerous, they're going to overtake us. So, you know, those things make a mark in your, in your memory. You know, this was part of their history. So there was rationality for building this memorial thing, this altar. But the question, you know, always is, why not communicate this up front? I mean, husbands. I speak to the husbands primarily. I mean, I get in more trouble because I don't front load communications to Wendy. I'm just assuming she's understanding what I'm talking about, you know. Can any brothers out there relate to me, you know, in that, okay, I see the women pointing some fingers, but I don't see the husbands voluntarily raising their hand. But yeah, communicate up front. What's gonna happen? Hey, hey, other ten and a half tribes, we're going to build, or nine and a half tribes, we're going to build an altar to remind us. Maybe they just didn't think it through. You know, is it possible that our brothers will misinterpret this memorial? Should we send somebody back to tell them? They intended for it to be a memorial, but the other nine and a half tribes saw it as a pseudo-substitute altar for worshiping perhaps someone other than God. You know, the thing I think we can jump into with this situation is the challenge we all face when it comes to making faulty judgments. Snap faulty judgments by the Western tribes. According to verse 11 and verse 12, there was already this built-in assumption that we need to go to war. What these guys have done on the, on the eastern side, we need to go to war. There's no questions asked. They don't know what's going on. They don't know the intentions. But there's this built-in assumption that we need to go to war. It says in verse 11 and 12 that the whole assembly gathered in Shiloh to go to war against them. Despite all of these years of what should have been intense close bonding times with each other, right? I mean, 40 years, a whole generation was destroyed as they wandering the wilderness so that God would now work with them to enter. They enter into the promised land and they fight together for five to seven years, at least, maybe longer. But man, how quickly the wheels fall off of this because of faulty snap judgments. So many years of struggle. Perhaps they were programmed to go to war. I think this is something for all of us today. Our culture kind of programs us to go to war. Our culture is just filled with so much anger and strife, tension, anxiety. I I just know for me, I think I may have mentioned this last week, but this has been a big change. You know, I just have had to unplug from a lot of news outlets because it's like, I just feel so... No matter what side of the equation you happen to fall on in the cultural issues, that just... It's, that's why it's so important to be. And to put off and put on the great things that Paul talks about. Well, God talks about through Paul in the Ephesian and the Colossian letter. Okay. So maybe they were just, they're in this, this mindset of war, right? You can't blame them for that, but they were caught up in this catastrophic thinking. Can anybody relate to catastrophic thinking? Oh, man. This person, man, they had this look on their face. Oh, what did I do wrong? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Or maybe they didn't say hi back to me as I passed them in the hallway. Oh, man, they don't like me. I mean, we all struggle with this. We all just struggle with this. You know, and they... The thing that you know we can learn from this is the nine and a half tribes, they didn't know the facts. They haven't gathered information. So many assumptions were made. That's what Jesus was talking about in John 7, right, when he said, look, stop judging by outward appearances. Judge one another rightly, but stop making snap wrong judgments based on outward appearances. Over the years, as I kind of got older, I've been through so many classes and so much of Scripture, I realized that, hey, you know what? Not everybody needs to think like me. Newsflash. Yeah. And that's a gift. The world would be a pretty boring place if everybody thought like me. But guess what? It would be pretty boring if they all thought like you too, right? (laughs) You know, I want to say something briefly about our thoughts. I... Wendy and I went to uh, some classes uh, in the leadership track of the conference we had back in August. It was great. This was kind of odd. I don't remember the name of the class, but it was sort of like ministry, mental health kind of things. And just a lot of great stuff shared. And this stuff is available. You can type this up. Go out to Google and type in, what do we think about And multiple sources will give you this data, whether you consider them out of touch or whatever. But the general landing point is, do you know that we have 12,000 to to 60,000 thoughts per day? That's a lot of thoughts, isn't it? I mean, the way that breaks down is 12 to 60 thoughts a minute. It's like, no wonder I lost my hair. (laughs) There's no room for follicles. (laughs) And the thoughts are usually self-motivated. Now, this is speaking of the general population. I know as disciples, we don't struggle with this at all. We have this so perfect. 90% of thoughts are self-motivated. 80% of our thoughts are negative thoughts. 80% of our thoughts are negative. And it can range from anything like ingratitude to feeling shamed or feeling guilty, all the way to this idea of catastrophic thinking. And 95% of our thoughts are repetitive. That's a lot of self-inflicted pain. That's a lot of stress. That's a lot of angst. And maybe sometime soon we'll get an opportunity uh, to talk about things that help us from God's word to really stop this cycle of pain in our life and get a grip of who we are in Christ and how we need to just stop and consider. Stop that, stop Satan from, you know, convincing us to go here. Stop listening to the lies of Satan and lock on to God's truth. You know, uh, this is a passage we looked at last week as well we were talking about setting your minds and your hearts on things above. You know, again, don't let this become a nursery rhyme in our life. Set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. You know, this is, you know, really practical. You know, and there's, like I said last week, there's no, just, just start stopping yourself. Stop thinking negatively. Stop thinking catastrophically. Set my mind on things above. Set my heart on things above. God, how do you want me? Jesus, how do you want me to process this experience right now? I'm really struggling with this coworker and, you know, I don't even know why. But I don't even, maybe I don't even know them. You know? These kinds of things are at play in our lives and are, all kinds of challenges for us to grow. And become more and more in the image of Jesus. One of the great things that I took away from the last preaching session we had at the conference, uh, and this was beyond the, uh, the leadership portion. I think this was at the end of the eight days of all conferences. A.T. Ar- Arneson, who is the evangelist for the Chicago Church, talked about how they've just been working with their staff this year on, you know, because of all of the voices coming in everywhere through social media, conversations with people, But, you know, I thought this was really great, and I've been thinking about this every day. Every day I've literally been thinking about this since August 7th or August 8th, whenever he preached this lesson. And it's from Jesus, it's not from AT. AT just kind of took what Jesus said and gave it to us. But he said, at the end of every thought, at the end of every conversation, at the end of every text, or every post, or every Facebook, or every tweet, or talk, or, you know, whatever we're doing today, end it with, in Jesus' name I say. Husbands, wives, every conversation with each other, in Jesus' name I say. Isn't that an awesome challenge? Isn't that a great, like, barometer for us? A little, what do they call it on a machine, Ken, where they don't let you go a certain speed? It's like a regulator, but governor. Governor. governor, governor, let that, let Jesus be our governor. He's not only our Lord. He's our governor And Jesus. So when we get into these, you know, these, these negative thought patterns or whatever, even in our encounters with one another, you know, think about this in Jesus name, I say, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who is a, a preacher, kind of drifted towards philosophy. I think when he died, he was still a believer in God, but, you know, kind of way out there, but he took biblical principles and he came up with this phrase, and you've probably heard this, we sow our thoughts, we reap our actions, right? We sow our actions, we reap our habits. We sow our habits, we reap our character. We sow our character, we reap our destiny. And again, I want to stand in defense of these other nine and a half tribes because there was certainly a history in Israel of failures and the ripple effect of sin, which I think also primed them to be super sensitive to this possibility of a false altar. Remember when Moses first went up to Mount Sinai, what happened? They made a god out of gold, a calf, and they worshipped it. In the text itself, it talks about the sin of Peor, And that's where the Israelites began intermarrying and had idolatry worship with the Midianites. And if you go back to Numbers 25, 24,000 Israelites died due to their idolatry and intermarrying Moabite women. And that's in the place where Phineas grabbed a spear. Phineas grabs a spear because he sees these Israelites coming still with the Moabite women and one of them has the audacity in front of the entire audience to go into a tent to sleep with this Moabite woman. And Phinehas stands up and says, how dare we defy the living God? And he takes the spear and he runs it through them. I mean, that's intense. That is really intense. And then the sin of Achan, occurring just a few years earlier, where Achan kept some of the bounty from the war. And God brought a curse upon So there was a history here. And as somebody said a few midweeks ago when I asked, what's the greatest challenge of Israel? It was idolatry. And you can certainly, certainly make the point that idolatry was a big problem. Even still, the nation continued to deal with idolatry. Something Joshua deals with in a couple of chapters later when he talks about get rid of your foreign gods. Well, I want to encourage us, as we think about this text this morning, that unity calls for commitment. You know, it's sort of like marriage. When I learned the first time that what marriage really is more than anything else, it's not about love, although love is important. It's not about romance, although romance is really important. It's commitment. Commitment is the bedrock to a great marriage. I'm not going anywhere She's not going anywhere, even though there's been times in the past where we may have felt that way. And probably sometimes Wendy felt like, shouldn't you go somewhere? (laughs) But you know, commitment, even in our relationship with God through Jesus, it's about commitment. We are committed to this. We're called to commitment. In Romans chapter 15, it talks about having a spirit of unity among ourselves that with one heart, with one mouth, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you got to give the uh, nine and a half tribes credit. They sent a delegation to inquire before going to war. You know, they were ready to go to war, but they decided to send a delegation. Okay, it may not be great, but it's a better alternative than just going to war. But even then, when they send out the delegation, the delegation's response right out the gate is, why will you break faith with us? They don't know. They haven't asked a the question. They haven't bothered to get the facts. But we do know that they sought the common good of Israel. And they didn't just sweep it under the rug. They were willing to address the challenge head on. When you factor in the fact that there's all this history of idolatry and the ripple effect that it's had on the nation, they were ripe for being peaked really quickly, very highly, about this idea of some of their brothers and sisters sinning. They didn't want that disaster coming into the rest of the camp again, right? They wanted to turn the people's hearts back to God. They even offer the territory west of the Jordan as a solution. If Look, guys, going over on the east side is going to be too challenging for you, then stay here. But don't lose faith. Don't break faith with God. Their intentions were good. The approaches were Off. We can look back on that with hindsight, right? right. But may, maybe we should apply many lessons from that as well. Right. <clears throat> I think we gotta appreciate the fact that the East Jordan, East Jordan people, they didn't get offended, they listened. You know, they didn't come back with, how dare you question our allegiance? Get out of here! Let's go to war! It kinda reminds me that how even times in my past I have failed the wisdom mark because it's been said that wise people are not easily offended. That's what Proverbs is filled with. Proverbs, I think 15 or 16 says, uh, actually Proverbs 12, 16, fools show their annoyance at once, but a prudent man will overlook an insult. Because they had a passion and appeal to the nine and a half tribes. They said, no, the Lord is our God. So they didn't get offended. They didn't shut down the conversation, but they responded with, no, the Lord is our God. We're not breaking faith with you. Each side wanted unity. They wanted the tribes to be together. What a, but, but there were so many challenges that could have blown that up right out the gate. And how do you think the Transjordan, uh, you know, tribes, the two and a half that went east, what do you think was going through their mind when they saw Phineas leading this group? Uh-oh. Hey, isn't this, isn't this the guy that thrust the spear in front of all of us? Is he loaded? Can anybody see? Does he, he got a weaponry? I mean, it's sort of like in Acts chapter 9, right? When Paul first became a disciple. Yeah. Remember how the, the, the disciples in Jerusalem reacted initially? Hey, wait a minute. This dude is throwing us in prison. And uh, he's, you know, bringing us before the Sanhedrin. And he's persecuting us. I don't know that we can trust this guy. Yeah. So there was rationale behind some angst, perhaps, on the side of the, of the transjordan jordan group. But you've got to respect the two and a half tribes because they made it clear in verses 21 and 22 that their allegiance was also to the Lord. Amen. As we wind down this morning, I want to encourage us about the reality that familiarity does not mean unity. In Romans 15:4, the scriptures, God tells us that, you know, all these things are written in the past, for our learning. So, you know, as we read about some of these strange, bizarre stories from the Old Testament, they're there for our learning. They're there for us to show ways in which our unity will be challenged. Our unity is challenged all the time. Meritorily, our unity is challenged, okay? Unity is challenged, families are challenged to maintain unity, The church is always challenged to maintain unity. And these challenges, I'm sorry to say, are not going away. So we can't pull back and shrink back from them, but we've got to embrace them from God's perspective. We need to learn these stories and say, okay, how do I do this differently so I don't jump to these same kind of wrong conclusions and, and bring more pain on myself and others? But familiarity does not mean unity. We're living in a time, like I said earlier, of amped up anxiety, amped up fear, amped up wickedness. Jesus even said in Matthew 24 that due to the increase of wickedness, what? True. But the love of many will grow cold. And it's true. Wickedness has a way of cooling off love making love more difficult, making love less appealing. Even in our fellowship of churches today, there is some division that we are settling with, or not settling with, but we're having to deal with. The role of women in the fellowship. We're seeing some of our churches split over this concept. The idea in some churches that women can be evangelists and women should be appointed as elders. That's not where the majority of our churches settle. That's not what I believe the Bible teaches. I also believe we've had a very solid, elevated role for sisters in the church. I see no problem with the sister leading a prayer in the fellowship or sharing specifically from the scriptures and, and giving a communion perspective. And it's not the time and the place for me to preach this, but you know, I don't know if your church saw it or not, but you know, our, our, our elder service team and our fellowship of churches put out a document back in December saying, hey, essentially this is how we see the role of women biblically. Not all of our churches see that anymore. I don't know what percentage, but it's a growing number of people. The evangelical world as a whole is caving on this, what I call caving on this option regularly. There's a new hermeneutic, that's been infectuating Christianity for over 30 years now. Hermeneutic is just a fancy name for interpretation. The whole issue as sexual identity and sexual orientation is being absorbed in the Christian world, if you will. And it's even making its way and causing strife within our fellowship of churches. We need to pray for our brother Guy Hammond and his ministry to continue on to teach what God's will is for us when it comes to the biblical sexual ethic. But guys, make no mistake about it. These types of pressures are coming. They're coming hard. They're coming fast. And they're coming in multiple directions. And our desire is not to be mean, but to treat everyone with kindness and respect, but to stand with the truth of God's word. Even authenticity of the scriptures are being challenged today, even within our network of churches. I believe, and I believe most of you, if not all of you, believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is not a a gift to us from men, smart people, but it's the very words of God. All scripture is inspired by God. We may not like it, but that is the truth of the matter. I don't always like or feel like I like some things that I read God telling me to do, but he is God and I am not. And so it's even fashionable in our greater culture to tear down and to divide as opposed to seeking more efforts to make every effort to keep the unity. Satan is great at distracting us. He wants nothing more to get us fighting inwardly so that we don't have an opportunity to share outwardly the glorious kingdom and the amazing mercy that Tony shared about in communion this morning of our Heavenly Father. Jesus said in John chapter 17, he prayed for one thing in that garden experience, that we would be what? One. And why did he want us to be one? So that the world would believe. That the world would believe. And finally, in James chapter 1, God tells us through James, consider it pure joy. When you face trials of many kinds. As we face these trials to our unity and these testings of our unity, they produce faith. And that faith produces perseverance. And perseverance is necessary so that our faith may mature and be complete. And also in James, God tells us that mercy triumphs judgment. Don't confuse mercy with permissive, Pray. 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 Yeah. Amen. Yes. but mercy first looks through the, the scope, the lens of compassion, Amen. trying to understand, trying to make room for differences, being considerate of others, and approaching things with the spirit of humility and grace and compassion. Mercy is being in touch with our God-centered identity. Tony and I didn't talk about what he was going to share, but that's how the Spirit works because even in that opening text that he shared, the emphasis is on God's great mercy. And if God can have that kind of mercy with me, surely we can put up with one another (laughs) and do it with great joy. And great mercy. And as the Philippian letter tells us, as God directed Paul to write that letter, for to me, to live is Christ. And as our sister Chloe would say, to die is gain. So this week, this week, I want to challenge you. with the very idea of embracing the words of our Heavenly Father. Mercy triumphs judgment. And to God be the glory.